0: From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and you notice it's a podcast about language, and if you've been listening, then you know that by language, really, we linguists mean speech and not writing. But now and then, one can bend, and just like I recently did on the topic of spelling, today I actually have been thinking about a particular letter. Or really, in my head, sound. But I know that for most of you, maybe, you think of it as a letter. And you wonder, which letter? Well, of course, the best way to illustrate this is with a Broadway musical clip. This is Sail Away, one of Noel Coward's Later, and frankly, weaker efforts. But this is the wonderful Elaine Stritch. And she's singing a song called The Little One's ABC. And listen to how this one is going to get us into the topic of today's episode. My darling. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O. Oh, what a jolly little jocular group we are. Blah, blah, blah. So you hear where she stopped? Well, that's going to be our letter. We're going to talk about P today. There is more to the letter slash the sound P than you might think, and I want to just take us through it. As always, I'm interested in how much the seemingly mundane can tell us. And so, first of all, just the shape of the letter. Our first indication of a P, we're talking about how it looks when we first know that it's supposed to signify the sound P. It's Like a question mark without a dot. That's how it first looks. And we have the Phoenicians, those wonderful Semitic-speaking seafarers working with it. And it starts changing because things have a way of just morphing whether we like them to or not. So I want you to imagine, have it in your head, maybe rotating on a little disc, but have it sitting in your head. A question mark without a dot. Got it? Now, imagine if the left end of it started gradually dripping down and finally hit the floor like when somebody's trying to make you stretch in one of those exercises and you're trying to touch your toes. Well, that's pi. That's the Greek pi, and that's how you get that particular symbol. But that thing evolved differently for the Romans. And so go back to that question mark without the dot. Now turn it, turn it on that disc that it's sitting on so that it's in the other direction. And now take that upper end and extend it down so that this thing puts its hand on its hip, so to speak. And then you've got a P. Why? Why did that happen? Partly because maybe it was bound to when people were writing this backwards question mark quite a bit. That's just the way things happen. It's also said that people were moved to make this thing look more like a B because P and B are really, if you think about it, variations on the same sound. And we'll get into that sort of thing shortly. But if people were really thinking about that, I personally have my doubts, but people smarter than me have said it. If that's what it was, then that's why this thing started looking the way it does, kind of like a bee. Why did it turn around? Maybe because that's easier to write when you're moving left to right instead of right to left. That's where you get the shape of this thing. And of course, in terms of the written symbol, it does give us the occasional frustration. And so why is it that we don't pronounce the P when it comes right before a T? Why is it pterodactyl, for example? Why not pterodactyl? But you just heard why. We don't want to say that. In English, we're not used to saying pterodactyl. We can you know, just like you can walk on your knees, just like you can walk up to your grandfather and lick him. But these are not things that you usually do. We don't want to say pter. Like, do you really want to say pterodactyl? I don't. I want to say pterodactyl. Do you know that some of those had like a 50-foot wingspan and spent most of their time on the ground and could eat dinosaurs and would happily munch on people if there had been any? There were pterodactyls that were the size of little whales. I mean they were they were bigger than giraffes and walked around on the ground. Just imagine. This just something to think about. But we don't want to say pterodactyl. Remember when I was in college I <laughs> knew this person who introduced me to what we now know as the gyro. Although somewhere along the line, she was certainly not Greek, but somewhere along the line, she picked up that it's not really pronounced gyro, that really we we would call them gyros if we were speaking Greek. And she had that transmogrified into euro. So she'd say, oh, let's go out and get a euro. And she did talk like that. And I remember thinking, stop. You know, to this day, I don't particularly like gyros just because I'm always thinking of it being sometime during the Reagan administration and somebody pronouncing it euro, which sounds like something vaguely dirty. But in any case, we have this letter P, and it shouldn't even be pronounced that way, really, for reasons that we've seen. It's that great vowel shift. Remember how I was saying that if you have a word like feed and it's spelled F-E-E-D, we're used to seeing the two E's and thinking, oh, yeah, E. But Why? If it's a normal language and you have those two E's, shouldn't it be A, shouldn't it be fade? And of course it was. It's just that the A changed to an A, changed to an E, changed to an E because of the great vowel shift. Well, that means if you're going to take it backwards, that means that something pronounced P now must have been pronounced pay before and it was. And if you think about it, it fits. If you know any other European language, well, that isn't called a P. It's called a pay. If you know Spanish, it's a pay. If you know French, it's a pay. That's what it is. Only in English do we call it p, And that's because A went to E. So you went pay to p. There's a musical about people who have to pay to go to the bathroom. And so, of course, we have to hear It's a Privilege to Pee from a musical, which I, well, I should say shit you not, was called you in Town. I saw it twice. It was a delight. It was kind of Kurt Vile meets news radio. And one of the songs is It's a Privilege to Pee. It's a privilege to pee. Water's worth its weight in gold these days. No more bathrooms like in olden days. You come here and pay a fee For the privilege to pee Twenty years we've had the drought And our reservoirs have all dried up I take my baths now in a coffee cup I boil what's left of it for tea And it's a privilege to pee If you enjoyed that tight high note, that was the wonderful Nancy Oppel, who was about to quit the business until she got this role. But pay to P, you must admit, that's good. That shows the organic connection between linguistics and Broadway musicals that I've been trying to elucidate in this podcast. Anyway, that is the beginning of our friend P. And you know, P contains multitudes, just as many things do. We're thinking, oh, well, it's just P. But if you were Korean, you'd want to be more fine-grained about it because there are different kinds of puh. So, for example, if I say pit, I said it in a certain way, the puh. There you go. If I say spit, then even though I'm talking about spit, it's actually a different kind of p. I'm more likely to get my hand a little wet if I say pit and put my hand in front of my mouth than if I say spit. Really, it's a difference between puh and puh, puh and puh. Now, to us, that's just so trivial. You're probably wishing that I would go to the commercial. But no, I'm not, because in English, yes, it's dull. Frankly, it's as dull as I, Claudius. It's just just not very interesting. But in Korean, there's a difference between P and P that you have to think about, because, for example, PUL means grass, okay? PUL means fire. PUL, PUL, PUL. Those of you who are Korean, yes, I know. I sound like a chimpanzee. But I'm trying to get across the basic fact that the spitty P is the one you use to say grass. The other P, the one where you don't spit as much, kind of it holds back. It's afraid to go too far. That one means fire. So that means that it's a real sound difference. So P versus P, those are different sounds. They're written with different letters. Those of us who like Korean food will think about the dish bibimbap. It's one of those things where I think half of the reason people like it is because it's fun to say. Bibimbap. It sounds like a baby beating on bongos, except you can eat that baby beating on the bongos. Bibimbap. But bibimbap is interesting because really, if you're Korean, those buzz are not the same. The only real B in terms of how we think of it in English is in the middle. It's the bim. Bop, the b and the bop, those aren't bees; those are peas. Those are the unspitty peas. Now, as you might guess, I'm not giving you the actual technical terms. Spitty p, puh, that's called aspirated. Unspitty p, but that is unaspirated. So, bim bop, we can say that. And we're going to keep saying it because we think of the baby and the bongos and the beating the bongos. Okay, but listen to an actual Korean. There are actual Koreans. You can find them. An actual Korean pronouncing "bim bop," And notice that the B and the bop are different from the bimp. Listen. Isn't that neat? So there is a such thing as unspitty P. And in many languages, that's what you have to do. Korean's interesting. If you're kind of a language fanatic the way I am, there's some languages where speakers are nicer to you when you try to speak. Koreans are, in my experience, very nice, but it's clear that you really do sound like a jack of ass trying to say anything. And a lot of the reason is that unless you're born to it, it's hard to do that difference between put and but. And so you just sound like you've got problems. There are other kinds of peas. Cutest thing that uh, my older daughter ever used to say before she could talk right was that she thought a bathing suit was a bathing soup. That's just very cute. And also suitcases were soup cases. And whenever she said bathing soup, for some reason, there would be this rather extensive release of the pee. not bathing soup. It was bathing soup. Yeah, bathing soup. She had to do that. There was even a little bit of a raspberry in it. It was bathing soup. She thought that was actually the way to say it. That wasn't that far, though, from what's called an ejective pee. And I could sit here and do it and make excuses and say that I don't know how to do it. But, you know, we have something called technology. So I can play you people doing the ejective P. It almost sounds like a game, but this is a real sound. So, for example, listen to this. That's Chechen. You ever actually heard Chechen? It's one of those languages of the Caucasus. That was the word for finger. Listen again to the P. Elg. Now, that person isn't trying to emphasize the pu or anything. That's really the sound. To just use a regular pu would mean something else. Or this is Quechua. So, we're in the mountains on the left side of South America. And here is this man using the word for clothing. Acha. That's an ejective P. So, you've got aspirated P's and unaspirated P's. You've got ejective P's. There are many different kinds of of penis. You knew I was going to go there. I remember my mother trying to give me the sociological perspective, as she used to call it. She was a social work teacher. And she gave me this article that was written in the 50s called Body Ritual Among the Nasarima. Absolutely fascinating. Nasarima is American spelled backwards. And this article was designed to get you thinking about your own life Anthropologically. And so this article used to get around more than it does, but it's really worth a read. Dig it up online. Talks about how, you know, we have medicine cabinets, except anthropologists of the future would analyze it as a charm box, that we have a mouth right ritual, which is this business of brushing our teeth with some implement on a regular basis. Women travel from town to town displaying what I'll say is in between their neck and their stomach. And that sounds like some sort of ritual, but really the person writing about this was thinking about roughly, you know, Jane Mansfield, et cetera. And so the Nasarima are these people who are us, except you're looking at it from a distance if you use that perspective. And in fact, I'm going to stop talking like an adolescent and I'm going to go back to my regular voice if you look at these things in perspective then you realize that the sounds that you think of as perfectly ordinary often are quite expendable. And P is one of those things. You don't have to have a P in your language to be quite a magnificent, not to mention thoroughly normal, language. So, for example, Arabic. Modern standard Arabic doesn't have a P. You don't have to have that. Or Iroquois languages. And so Seneca, Cayuga, Mohawk. Onondaga, languages that I think we're beginning now to associate with the Finger Lakes and certain wines that are never quite as good as people say they're going to be. You know, somebody says, oh, I've got this wine from upstate New York, and they're, they're kind of rubbing their hands together, and there's this kind of gleam in their eye. And never, Really? That has nothing to do with the Native American languages or cultures. But Iroquois languages, you know, they don't have puh or buh. They just don't. And there you go. And you wonder why. Like, what's the reason? Why would a language not have puh? Because we have it and it seems so basic. But the whys can be tough. Like, there was one person about 100 years ago who theorized about the Iroquois that the reason they don't have a puh is because it's considered impolite to put your lips together during conversation. But there's no evidence of that. Nobody said that. It was just something that they came up with based on the fact that the languages didn't have "p". There's no such thing as it being considered bad form to let (laughs) Your lips touch. And then there are more tempting cases. And so, for example, if you look at languages around the world that don't have puh, it tends to be random scattering, you know, Arabic and then, you know, some languages spoken in upstate New York and, you know, nearby Canada. But then you do get a clustering, and it's a distinct clustering around the equator in Africa. You have it in the Ethiopian highlands on the top of the rainforest. You have all these languages that don't have puh, and often they're not even related. And so something's going on. Now, as it happens, in exactly that area, there are a lot of cultures where it is common to have plugs or discs in your lips as a kind of decoration. Could it be that that might discourage a language from having a puh sound? It just Might, but it's one of those things that a certain kind of linguist or anthropologist immediately just whips out a bear paw and smacks down. And, you know, they they should be very skeptical because, wow, you have to be very careful with these things. The Hawaiian language. I don't mean people speaking English in Hawaii, but the Hawaiian language that's Polynesian. That language only has eight consonants, depending on how you count it. Now, you might want to ask why. But then again, what would it have to do with the people? You know, to be Hawaiian is to not... Need to enunciate, that clearly doesn't work. Or the click languages, they've got their clicks. Many of them have dozens and dozens and dozens of those fascinating clicks. Well, why? And you can't help thinking maybe it has something to do with hunting and maybe those clicks are the way that you call a warthog or something like that. But no, if you think about it, wouldn't those clicks scare away the warthog? The way that you hunt something is not to make more noise as you approach it. So you have to be careful. There are things that seem connected but really aren't. It's the sort of thing that you can learn from, well, say, Charlie Brown. You're a good man, Charlie Brown. There was a song in this wonderful piece of work called Little Known Facts. I played piano for it in college in 1984 and 5. And you know what? Philadelphia Free Library, I stole the score. I borrowed it and I never gave it back. I still have it. It's all marked up. And if you want me to bring it down to Philadelphia next time I'm in town, I'll give it to you. But it's given me much pleasure over the years, especially because I never paid for it. Here is the song, Little Known Facts. You see this tree? It is a fir tree. It's called a fir tree because it gives us fur for coats. It also gives us wool in the wintertime. It's very interesting, Lucy. I never knew that before. This is an elm tree. It's very little will grow up into a giant tree an oak. you can tell how old it is by counting its leaves hush that's fascinating now wait a minute lucy i don't mean to interfere but and way up there those fluffy little white things those are clouds they make the wind blow and way down there those tiny little black things those are bugs They make the grass grow. Is that so? Uh Uh-huh. They run around all day long, tugging and tugging at every little seedling till it grows up to be a giant blade of grass. Boy, that's amazing. Oh, good grief. Yep. Did you hear that? I didn't say yes. I didn't say yay. I didn't say yeah. I didn't say yeah. I said yep. What is that? Yep. Where did that little puh come from? And notice that it's the same thing with no. Nope. Now, I don't know how many of us think of nope as a separate dictionary entry from no, but yep, nope. I remember when I was little fella, getting the occasional sardine at school, misspelling cement around that same time, I heard my father now and then saying, Welp. he used to say whelp often when we had people over who he didn't really like, and that was kind of his way of hinting that it was time for them to leave, and he would say Welp and I remember thinking at the time, I guess whelp is a different word from well, but we know that it isn't really. It's just that when we want to indicate a certain finality, when we want to indicate a certain wrapping up, a certain crispness of intent, then we close our mouths. So I guess we're not very Iroquois because we put our lips together. And so instead of yes, you have, yep. Which implies, well, that settles that or something along those lines. Because you have cut off the airstream, it sounds final. There's a certain kinesthetic iconicity about it. That sounded good. So you have yep, nope, and then welp. And that means that it's not a question as to why certain Midwesterners, when they're squeezing by somebody or the like, will say ope. So you kind of wonder, well, what is the etymology of ope? Does it go back to some Proto-Indo-European word, or something like that? No, it's nothing like that. Ope is just O with that same yep, nope, whelp, puh. So, ope, oh, and it kind of nicely indicates that you're paying attention. There's a kind of a salute. It's kind of, you know, a starch collar. Ope, oh, I didn't mean to run into you here, you know, at Target, and so I'm going to just slip by. Likely, also, oop, and whoops. That's probably the same puh. So sometimes you just have an anatomical explanation for why you're using a pu. So for example, papa" just comes out of child after child after child all over the world, including English-speaking childs, children. Notice, it, it just should be child. Try to spread that around. But children, it just kind of comes out. So the original word is "pater" in Proto-Indo-European, and you have pater still in Latin. That goes to "father. In Germanic languages, because p goes to f, but then papa keeps on coming out. Nobody comes up with fafa in terms of what they call their father, and that's because p is something that a child naturally does with their mouths. You open it and shut it, you open it and shut it, and you start doing it with your lips, pop, 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 and pretty soon you're going to go ta 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 ta, ta ka, ka, ka 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 ka. That's how you learn to talk. We've talked about that on this show. Sometimes p it's just important because it's what happens to come out when you put your two lips together and you don't blow. You just let it build for a second and then pop out with a little explosion. You know, it's all about lips. So are some songs. Well, not necessarily all about lips, but they have cute lyrics that have to do with lips. I don't know. Just randomly, let's take a Cole Porter tune from 50 Million Frenchmen in 1929. One of my favorite lyrics. Yes. I'm forcing it here, but it's because I haven't done Bobby Short. Bobby Short was a great saloon singer, as he used to put it, cabaret singer. I have every single one of his recordings up until the last ones, which were a little perfunctory. This is him singing, You've Got That Thing, Listen for the Lyric About Lips. Very well done, Mr. Porter. You got that thing, you got that thing, the thing that makes bees refuse esteem. You've got that thing. Reformers, reform, reforms, you've got that thing. Yes, that's it. They tell us Trojan Helen's lips made every man her slavey. If her face launched a thousand ships, for well, yours could launch a navy. Do you, you ever notice that P's a little fancy? What I mean by that is that what? really only so many words begin with P. You don't necessarily think of it that way, but actually it's only the 19th most common letter in the alphabet. And after P come B, V, and those don't seem so uncommon either, but then K, J, X, Q, Z, you know, those weird letters that don't quite belong. P's a little little fancy, a little odd. And it's because, this is an interesting thing about P, it's because we should have more Words that say begin with P, but they begin with F because to be a good Germanic language is to have undergone that sound change. So we don't have a pater, we have a father. We don't say penque or pento when we're talking about five of something. It's five because the P went to a F. We don't have pedal extremities, we have feet and so on. So that means that we end up losing the P's that we should have. You can take, um, a large dictionary, and you can look at, say, the first random six entries beginning with P and filter out the variations on certain words or the things that aren't really words in any real way. The first six real word words. So, for example, pablum, pace, pachycephalosaur, pachyderm, pacific, pack. Now, of those, Really, pablum, you know, is something that was created late in the game. Pace is from French. It's not original English. Pachyderm, same thing. That's one of these words that we brought in later. Pacific is certainly not our original English rootstock. Only pack is, and its actual background is obscure. So there's something funny about P. It's a privilege to P. Privilege, once again, is one of these, you know, French slash Latin words. Then you just go back one letter to O, and all of a sudden things get much more barnyard. You've got lots more original, normal, make America great English words. You all know I don't mean anything like that. So, oaf, oak, or. Those are words. Those are the ones where, frankly, we have to go to oak, or oaf. You know, the old English voice; those are real words spoken by weary people who lived, you know, nasty, short, brutish lives. Now then, there's oasis. That's one of those fancy words. But then the next one is oat. Now you know people have been eating oats since we became a species. And then oath. Now these are real words: oaf, oak, or oat, oath. You know, I knew a guy when I was about thirteen who used to call people oaks. It was something that I heard especially a lot of young black boys saying in the late 70s. And then nobody ever seemed to say it again. Oh, he's oaky. And they didn't mean anything about Grapes of Wrath. He's an oak. What happened to oak? So, oaf, oak, or oat, o, real things. But then with pepablum, pachycephalosaur, pachyderm, pers- see, there's a difference there. Like, if you happen to have a glossary of Old English, to hand. And of course, don't all of us. You'll notice that, for example, in mine, there are only about 15 words in Old English that begin with P. Just 15, whereas, you know, with the other words, there, are hundreds. And we can think of some homely words that begin with P, but pot is actually borrowed. Pat is probably imitative, kind of like pat, 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 pat. pig probably started as big and became pig. Now Words like pork and pleasure and parasol Those are French words. Or, for example, peach jello is a French word. Or you've got words with pre and post and prater. Those are Latin and Greek words. So P is just odd. And, yes, you want to know what a (laughs) pachycephalosaur is. They were these dinosaurs that they looked like um, little construction workers. They had these helmet skulls, and it's said that they used them to run into each other during mating but more likely they were just kind of some sort of sexual display they they looked like guy Kibbies, they looked like william jennings bryans and they were called Pachycephalosaurs. we know them today only from their bones which of course leads to a delightful late 20s song that isn't heard for some reason and yet is always delightful i heard it way back in college you can hear it now It'd get gets too hot for comfort And you can't get ice cream cones Ain't no sin to take off your skin Dance around your bones When that lazy syncopation Of the music softly moans Ain't no sin Take off your skin Dance around your bones A polar bears ain't green and green Greenland They got the right idea They think it's great for me to refrigerate While we cremate down here I'll Dinosaurs bones dance around in your bones anyway we're talking about pee and i know the joke that's just been hanging over all of this especially ever since the urine town song pee as as urine you know so so what what about it we'll get the relevant clip out of the way right now oh fred yeah nobody walks out on me sweetheart oh don't sweetheart me you son of a bitch whoopee Yes. I gotta pay. <laughs> no, oh, I'm no one's wife, but oh, I love my life and all <laughs> that. Why is it called P? Well, apparently that is an abbreviation for, frankly, piss. And, you know, that word piss goes back to what's often thought to be an imitative word. And so you know piss in French, but it's an abbreviation for piss because you don't want to say piss. Piss is a pretty nasty kind of word. And so you just call it P. You're using the letter P. It's kind of like um, BM bowel movement, which was what was used in my family. And I've noticed not much since. I don't know whether it was just my family, whether there's some sociological breakdown or whether that's gone out since the early 70s. But nowadays, you call it poop. That which I now call poop was called BM to me in 1969. But BM, you're not going to walk around talking about bowel movement. And so you say BM. And it's funny about our excretion and euphemisms. Urine, for example. if you think about Think about urine. Don't you get the feeling that's not an English word? And it's not. That's a prissy borrowing from French. And so you eat pork, you kill the pig. You know, you eat beef, you kill the cow, things like parasols and and pleasure. Those are fancy words. That's where most of the French words fit in. Urine is one of those things. Piss is the real thing. Urine is something where you're kind of talking around it. And it makes you wonder, was piss the only word that English had? No, because we seem to have that from French too. You know what the original word for pee was in English? It was a word, hlande. H-L-A-N-D. Who would have thought? Hland. We had that. And urine and piss just kind of pushed it out. And, you know, there still is a word, land, used in obscure places. Land can not only mean that that you walk on and maybe own some of. Another word, land, means aged urine (laughs) or to flavor ale with aged urine. There is inequality in this world. And so that word land from Hland still exists. And so these are my reflections on a letter of the alphabet, a sound, a symbol. There's often so much in that which seems so small, like pachycephalosaurs or parasitic wasps, or any number of things that don't really attract your attention. Just zero in, and who knows what you're going to see. Letters, letters, I get letters. Here is something that so many of you asked last week that I wanted to start in with an answer. I think we'll hit the topic again some other time. But why is it that other European languages didn't have such upheaval in their sound systems as Englishes did, setting them apart in their spelling systems from the way people actually talk. And so I'm saying, well, vowels are always moving. And a very natural question is, well, then how come that hasn't happened in German? How come that hasn't happened in French and Spanish? And, you know, it varies with the language. French and oh, Danish can be quite the mess. But no, in general, English, especially for the languages most of us have any reason to know, ends up looking like just a goddamn mess compared to the other European languages. And part of the answer is that I say vowels are always changing, and I do like to stress that the Great Vowel Shift was not evidence of something absolutely bizarre and unprecedented, but the Great Vowel Shift was quite a lurch. English happened to undergo more of that kind of vowel change than many of the other languages did. Some people say that it was because of speakers of different dialects of English coming together, and that kind of rocked the boat. I'm not terribly convinced by that, but I also have never thought about it too terribly hard. But the great vowel shift was extreme. That is not something that, say, Spanish has gone through. Then another wrinkle is English's particular relationship To French. So, not only did we borrow an awful lot of French words, but we tended, especially after a certain amount of time, to keep them in their original spellings because of the prestige of French instead of hearing the French words and digesting them into English pronunciation spelled in an English way. And so you end up with things like Gazette with the extra T, E, and suddenly you've got words with Q, U, etc. and they're just kind of brought in. So it makes things more of a mess. And then, of course, there'll always be irregularities at the edges. And so that's part of the answer to that very reasonable question. And in the meantime, just randomly, for no reason today, I want to go out on what really is one of my four favorite minutes of recorded sound. It is not Broadway, it's The Spinners. It is a song called Could It Be I'm Falling in Love. I've probably listened to this track a thousand times and get hairs standing on the back of my neck. I don't actually have any hair back there. Every time I hear it, never get sick of it. We're going to start it with the incredible instrumental interlude in the middle. This just makes me so happy. Who arranged this? It's absolutely amazing. In any case, you can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe, or just to reach out, go to slate.com slash lexiconvalley. Notice there was a P word in that. It was past, as in past shows. And see, that's from French. P is fancy. In any case, this show was edited by Mike Wolo, and I looking forward to having peach-flavored jello gelatin tonight for dessert am John McWhorter.